Now, Paul has been concerned in uh, this section of the letter to the Colossians with establishing the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. In uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he was concerned with Christ's preeminence in the redemption of sinners, that Jesus was not merely one intermediary between God and man, which those on the quest for the fullness of salvation through mystical enlightenment could resort to, but rather that he was the only intermediary between God and man, that redemption and remission are in him, that by his bloody death and undergoing of the wrath of God, he paid a ransom to God's offended justice in order to liberate sinners from the captivity and misery of the guilt of their sins, and that by his death he erased the handwriting of ordinances that was against them, that he canceled that legal document that declared their guilt and appointed their punishment, so that in the eyes of the law, sinners could now stand innocent and perfect and justified before God. And this he did by making a real objective atonement in his bloody death as man, as an incarnate, as God incarnate as man, standing in the stead and room of sinners. And then in verse 15, the first part of verse 15, really all the way through verse 17, Paul turns to establishing Christ's preeminence with regard to the creation, the world, the universe, uh, things in heaven and things on earth, his uniqueness from creation and his authority over creation. And the first thing he sets forth is his uniqueness from creation. And he establishes the preeminence of his nature by revealing that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And this we broke down into two points. That first of all, God essentially is invisible and unknowable. No man has seen God at any time. To the only wise God, eternal, immortal, invisible. Invisibility is a property or an attribute of God. God is known only by manifestation or revelation, as in the creation, or in man, when he revealed himself. But of course, those revelations are incomplete and imperfect. Certainly in creation are known as eternal power and as Godhead. In man is seen the dominion of God over creation. But they're incomplete revelations, and they're imperfect, marred by sin, both in man and the creation which groans, waiting for redemption from the bondage which it's been subject to by the fall of man, according to Romans so the second point being then, that as God was invisible, so Christ is the perfect and complete visible representation of the invisible God. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. That Christ manifests to us as the creator and as preserver and especially and particularly as the incarnate Lord and Redeemer, He manifests to us the nature and the attributes of the invisible God. So that to see Christ is to see God. To know Christ is to know God. In Him are revealed God's mercy and love and grace and justice and holiness and glory and perfection. And this, of course, marks Christ as uniquely preeminent, not as some sort of superhuman celestial being, but as the visible God, counterpart to the invisible God. God expressed, God manifested, 
God to be known and in his incarnation seen and handled, as uh, John says in 1 John. And this, of course, places him unique from and preeminent above angels and saints and any other being, for he is God. Now, having established this implied divinity of Christ and his preeminence as the image of the invisible God, a title which, of course, in its fullness belongs to no one else, Paul then turns expressly to Christ's relationship to creation, showing how he is preeminent in several regards. Beginning at verse 14, rather in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, or with reference to all creation, for by him, or in him, were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him or in him and for him. And he is before all things, and by or in him all things consist. The verse which we intend to look at today is the second half of verse 15 in these words, the firstborn with reference to all creation. Now, first of all, we have to say that the purpose of this verse is not to defeat all that has gone before and what comes afterward, and to say that, after all, Christ really is a created being. Not at all. <clears throat> this is not pointing to the humanity of Christ or to his uh, membership in creation as a created being, for that would be both false and misleading, nor is it pointing to his Humanity as joined to his divinity, as God manifest in the flesh. Don't think it's talking about that because of the context, as we'll see. Uh, in fact, it has a very special point. In order to understand it, we have to understand that this is an idiom, a, uh, a Hebrew idiom, in fact, that is being used. And this uh, idiom is itself based on a certain aspect of the ancient Hebrew social economy. And so to understand uh, what it means that Christ is the firstborn with reference to all creation, we have to first understand what the scriptures hold forth to us about the position of the firstborn in Hebrew society. Then secondly, we want to look at how this concept of the firstborn it was transferred or became an idiomatic concept that is used to describe things that have nothing to do, in fact, with, uh, with uh, birth or death, and then to understand how all of these things apply to the Lord Jesus in this context. Now, we have several uh, things to discuss from the Old Testament with regard to the position of the firstborn. The firstborn... The position of the firstborn son, I should say, was that of privilege and preeminence with regard to the family and the inheritance and society at large. Now, first of all, the firstborn was preeminent in the inheritance, with regard to the inheritance from the family. For example, there is a law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, I'll read. If a man has two wives, one beloved and the other hated, and they've borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, 
Then it shall be when he makes his sons to inherit that which he has, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So, so first of all, the firstborn had a preeminence with regard to the right of inheritance. He received a double portion, twice what any of the other sons would receive by way of inheritance. And the reason is that he is the beginning of his strength. We'll perhaps come back to that concept. Uh, another example of this, uh, the Second Chronicles, chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, stressing the right of the firstborn, the preeminence of the firstborn in the inheritance. Now Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. And he had brethren, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah and Jehiel and Zechariah and Azariah and Michael and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel, in addition to Jehoram. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things with fenced cities in Judah. But the kingdom gave he to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. The kingdom went to Jehoram. The kingdom goes to the firstborn. The double portion goes to the firstborn. For he is the beginning of his strength. The firstborn was also preeminent in the right of blessing. The right of blessing. This was a common thing in the Old Testament. I'll take you to a couple of references. Uh, and in fact, these references sort of, by being the exception to the rule, establish the rule. Genesis 48:18. Uh, Joseph has brought his uh, children uh, to uh, his father to uh, to bless them, and uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and uh, he he says he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abram and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be named on them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. See, Manasseh was the firstborn. He should have received the right hand. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So, prophetically, Jacob alters the normal blessing which Manasseh should have had by right in order to prophesy of the, of the preeminence of Ephraim over his brother. Also, Genesis chapter 27, of course, uh, another Another altering of the right of blessing. Genesis 27, uh, verse 19. And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. You see, uh, Jacob uh, had, had, had come in 
to deceive Isaac, to pretend to be Esau, to receive the blessing which Esau should have had as the firstborn. And of course, uh, he pretended to be Esau. He received the blessing of the firstborn, though he was not the firstborn. And then uh, in in, uh, verse 32, Esau, of course, uh, comes in and says, uh, uh, says, uh, Esau comes in, there's an exchange, and he says, uh, I am thy son, thy firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who, where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him, yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry, and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety, and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob, for he hath supplanted me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? So, uh, complicated area there, but again, the prophetic alteration of the preeminence in the right of blessing of the firstborn. Now, the firstborn was not only preeminent in inheritance and in the right of blessing, he was preeminent in public right, as to the position that he had in the family, publicly. Genesis chapter 43, 33, is something that happens in the way of passing, just to mention Uh, Joseph has brought all of his brothers, they don't know he's Joseph yet, brought all of his brothers to Egypt, and he's, uh, he's going to have a feast for them, and he brought, and he, and he assigned each one of them a place there at the table or in the banquet hall, and he set them by age from the least to the oldest, uh, which of course astonished them when they saw that this had happened. But the way it is described, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. Uh, The preeminence of the firstborn in public position being established as his birthright. Also, uh, another uh, case of that is in 1 Chronicles, chapter 26, a discussion of, uh, again, incidental to what's described, but it points out the right, the public right of the firstborn, the preeminence of the firstborn in public right. This concerns, according to verse 1, the division of the porters in the temple. And as we skip down to uh, verses 10 and 11, also of the children of Merari had sons, Simri the chief. For though he was not the firstborn, yet his father made him the chief. Hilkiah the second, Tebaliah the third, Zechariah the fourth. All the sons and brethren of Hosea were thirteen. So again, an exception pointed out as being contrary to the rule. The father made him the chief, whereas normally the firstborn would have been the chief. Of course, the slaying of the firstborn, Exodus chapter 11, was a particular misery. You remember, it was not merely the slaying of some of their children, not merely one of their children, but the particular misery was that it was the slaying of the firstborn. The slaying of the firstborn was the particular misery. And of course, subsequent to that, the firstborn were claimed by God. 
whether it was of the flocks of the field or of the children of the Israelites, so that an entire tribe from Israel, the, the tribe of Levi, was devoted to religious service in the place of the firstborn of Israel. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, or in Numbers chapter 3, 13 to the end. Uh, <clears throat> God claiming the firstborn as belonging to him, and undoubtedly something prophetic in that as well, the firstborn being the ones who would grant religious service to God, so that, of course, in the New Testament... The church of Jesus Christ is called the church of the firstborn. Not referring to Christ, but to all the members of the church. They are God's firstborn, who are, the, uh, who are priests unto God, each one, not just having a priest, but each one being a priest. All devoted to the service of God, so that they are the church of the firstborn. And of course, Jesus Christ, as we'll see, being preeminently the firstborn, claimed by God uh, in 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 the pinnacle of priestly service uh, to the Father. So the firstborn then was preeminent with regard to the right of inheritance, receiving the double portion, preeminent in the right of blessing, receiving the preeminent blessing under normal circumstances of the father of the family. He was preeminent in public right, receiving the principal or first place publicly with regard to the family and the chief position amongst all brethren under normal circumstances. Uh, the, the firstborn was such an important, vital uh, uh, element of family life that the slaying of the firstborn was a particular misery and the firstborn were claimed by God particularly, devoted to religious service, either sacrificed as the firstborn that which opened the womb of animals, or redeemed by the devotion of an entire tribe under religious service in the tribe of Levi uh, to redeem all of the firstborn of Israel. The firstborn, for he is the beginning of his strength. Now this concept of the preeminence of the firstborn found its way into a figure of speech as well. So that the firstborn of something is a word that becomes used to describe anything that is prominent or chief or preeminent. Uh, for example, if we look in the book of Job, uh, Job chapter 18, a book about the miseries of a man, Job chapter 18, verse 13. He says, The snare is laid for him in the ground and a trap for him in the way, beginning at verse 10. Terrors shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. His strength shall be hunger-bitten and his destruction shall be ready at his side. It shall devour the strength of his skin. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. The firstborn of death. What does this mean? The concept of... It means we've been having this whole list of, of maladies that, have been, that will afflict the... Uh, I suspect this is the ungodly man. Uh, and yes, the light of the wicked will be put out. This is speaking of the wicked man, all the things that will come upon him. And in speaking of all these terrible things that come upon him, he ends with this concept after this long list of the firstborn of death 
devouring his strength. What's the firstborn of death? It is the malady of maladies, the, 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 uh, uh, the most terrible of terrible things that could ever come upon a man. The, the, the chief uh, terror of death shall devour his strength. In, uh, in fact, his confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle, and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. That in the next verse, uh, paralleling the firstborn of death, the king of terrors, that which is preeminent, death's most terrible misery. Another example would be in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah 14, verse 30. Very different sort of a passage. Going back to verse uh, 29. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestine, or Philistia, excuse me, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety. And I will kill thy root with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant. The firstborn of the poor is the, is the idea of the poorest of the poor, as one commentator puts it, the pauper of paupers. So, uh, another example, of course, uh, Israel, the nation, is called God's firstborn, uh, both typically of Christ and because they were God's chosen people, and so therefore the most preeminent of all of the peoples upon the face of the earth, Exodus 4.22. Ephraim, Ephraim is called God's firstborn, Jeremiah 31.9. Remember the blessing of uh, Jacob upon Ephraim over Manasseh? So, switching what should have been the right and the left hand. Now Ephraim, Jeremiah 31.9, is called God's firstborn because that tribe had a superiority, at least in this prophetic passage, over all of the other tribes. Ephraim, God's firstborn, by its preeminence over the other tribes. Israel, God's firstborn, because being God's chosen people, preeminent above other nations. The king of terrors being the firstborn of death. The firstborn of the poor being the pauper of paupers. All similar ideas. And so that this, this, this word, this concept of the firstborn, develops the figurative meaning of anything that is chief or lord or... Uh, preeminent. So the question then becomes, in what sense then can we appropriate the term firstborn, either literally or figuratively, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how is it especially to be understood with regard to his being the firstborn with reference to all creation? Now when we consider the purpose of this entire section of Colossians being to prove the preeminence of Christ... And we compare that with what we have surveyed thus far of this meaning or concept of the firstborn in Scripture. It is uh, beautifully, plainly obvious why the application of the concept of the firstborn to Christ makes perfect sense. And in fact, we see it applied to Christ in a number of senses. For example, in the Messianic uh, Psalm 89, Christ is called God's firstborn. Or rather, it is said, I will make him my firstborn, 
which is explained immediately as higher than the kings of the earth. I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. This whole section is talking about the regal dominion of Christ. And so that the concept here, I will make him my firstborn, means I will invest him, as one commentator puts it, with royal dignity, clothe him with preeminent splendor, so as that he shall tower in majesty over all of the other kings. I will make him my firstborn, like unto one who is the firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. The firstborn equaling preeminent honor. In Hebrews 1.6, when, uh, when Christ is called God's firstborn, it is in order to show his superiority over the angels as the Son. He is not a ministering spirit, but he is the righteous God. And as the first begotten, he's not equal to angels. He's not below angels. He is to be worshipped by angels, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. Which uh, is both a, a citation from the Septuagint, Deuteronomy 32.43, but also uh, bears a significant resemblance to Psalm 97.7. And let all the gods worship him. Worship him, all ye gods, all ye Elohim, which is another term that is used to describe angels at various times. So in this passage, this extended passage then, the fact that Christ is called a son and the first, firstborn of the Father is not to prove that he's part of the creation, but to prove that he is exalted over every created being, including the angels. By inheritance, he's obtained a more excellent name. He is the strength of the Father, the beginning of his strength. He, he, is, the, he is the one who has the double portion of the inheritance. He's the firstborn, and so he has the place of preeminence, so that he says to let all the angels of God worship him. To the angels, they are made spirits, and flame and his ministers a flame of fire, but to the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So the entire point of this place in identifying him as the firstborn, verse 6, <clears throat> is to show that he's preeminent over the angels because he is the Son of God and not a created ministering spirit. With regard to being firstborn among a class of things, twice he is called firstborn of the dead. First of all, in Colossians, a, a passage we'll get to very shortly, Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, in a, in a list of things attributed to Christ, and from Jesus Christ, who is A, the faithful witness, B, the first begotten of the dead, C, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's the faithful witness. He's the first begotten, first born from the dead, and he's the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, in each one of these places, the intent is to prove more than just that he is 
first in order. It's not merely the idea that Christ, that there's going to be a glorious resurrection and Christ is the first one that was resurrected. It's not that idea at all. The concept of being the firstborn from the dead in these things has to do with his having a, some type of preeminence and as we think about some type of honor and as we think about the, the usage of this word, we understand that it's not merely the first in order, but rather he is the prince over that class of which is being discussed because by his rising from the dead, all other resurrections are secured. Now that's not mentioned in these passages, but it's fleshed out. See, each thing in the list, the prince of the kings of the earth, firstborn of the dead, or here, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, pointing to uh, the fact some, some point of preeminence or honor that he has over this group, which is explained in 1 Corinthians 15, particularly verses 12 through 23. Why is Christ preeminent as the firstborn from the dead? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming, then cometh uh, the end. That's there at verse 22. If we go back to verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and our faith is in vain. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he, ra whom he didn't raise up if the dead don't rise. For if the dead don't rise, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, your faith is vain and you're yet in your sins. And those which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive." The concept here, very clearly, is not merely that Christ was the beginning of resurrections that God was going to do, but that Christ secured all of these resurrections that God was going to do. That, because this is the preaching of the resurrection of Christ. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. By man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. Christ is the first fruits which testifies of and secures that which comes afterward. <clears throat> so therefore he is more than just the beginning of the resurrections. By being the firstborn from the dead, he is the prince of the resurrected and the chief of the resurrected, the one in whom all other resurrections obtain place, and the one by whom all other resurrections are, are secured. He is also called firstborn among many brethren. Romans chapter 8, 29. And this passage again establishes this concept that we're talking about here. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Now, the context here, Paul is, is not talking, hardly even talking about this. He's talking about uh, the how God, uh, how God's um, predestination ensures that all things work together for the good of those He's called according to His purpose, and how He sanctifies His people. How He's not against His people, for whom He did foreknow. Verse twenty-nine. Him also did he predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's sanctification. In order that the Son might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's saying here that the Christian, when he is sanctified, when he is conformed to Christ's image, that this is done so that Christ might be firstborn among many brethren. And this conforming of men to Christ's image, because that's how he describes it, shows the honor and authority conferred on the Son. It is Christ's image that men are conformed to. And that is a point of preeminence. It, you, because, he's, because he's saying here that he's going to perfect the saints. And he's, and he's identifying the, this, what kind of perfection it is by, show, by saying it's the image of the Son. The image of the Son of God is this perfection to which men are going to be performed. And, and so that he'll be the firstborn among many brethren. He will be the exemplar in the head. He is the true Son. All others are by adoption. He's the elder brother with the right and privilege of position. The point here is to exalt Christ. Not merely to say that he's, he's, he's sanctifying other people so that there will be a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of brethren so that Christ can have other brethren so that, he can be the, so that he can be merely the first in order. Not that idea at all. But he's conforming them to the image of Christ so that Christ will be the preeminent son among the brethren. It's always pointing not, not merely to some concept of principle in order uh, or sequence, but to principle, <coughs> excuse me, to principle in preeminence and, and, and honor and, and chiefness and lordship. Now, when we take all of these things and we return to our passage, firstborn with reference to all creation and that's my interpretation. That literally, it's simply firstborn, all creation. There's no intermediary words. You have to substitute something based on the case. And it's what's called a, a, a genitive case, and uh, I take it to be what's called a genitive of reference. Firstborn with reference to all creation. Now, the idea uh, that we can, we can uh, uh, take from uh, the point of our previous study here the use of the term firstborn here is in order, obviously, to honor Christ. That's self-evident. The use of the term firstborn is to honor Christ. And it is to honor Christ with regard to his preeminence, because that's the point of the whole passage. And so to say that he's the firstborn over the creation, based on what we've had so far, is to point to his preeminence with regard to the creation, to point to his chiefness, his lordship, because this much must be signified. Not that he is the beginning of creation, in the sense that he was the first thing that was created, but Christ, Christ is uncreated. In fact, we'll see shortly that that's defeated by the fact that he is the creator. Not that he is the, the beginning of the creation, that he's the first created thing, but that he's the king, he's preeminent with regard to creation, he's the lord of creation. Now the second point, uh, just to notice by way of passing at this point, is the very intentional use of the word all. He is not chief or preeminent with regard to some of creation, but with regard to all of creation. And this will be 
fleshed out in more specifics, and this is very important. Because as the angels are created beings, if Christ is not preeminent with regard to the angels, as we've been seeing asserted in Hebrews, then it is possible, conceivably, that uh, Christ is either not divine, that he is a created being, or that he is only one of many intermediaries. And that's the whole thing that's being refuted. That Christ is preeminent with regard to all of creation, and that includes the heavens and the earth, the spiritual things and the creations, those things that are called thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Those are all terms used to refer to the angelic host. We'll, we'll come to that later, not today, future messages. But now we simply observe that to Christ is assigned the place of universal chiefness or preeminence with regard to the creation. He's the Lord of creation. And the reason why that term is assigned to him specifically will come up in the next verse. But to explain it in short order, it's because he's the creator of creation. He is the Lord or chief of creation. And in fact, there is a usage in uh, one of the Jewish... Uh, extra-biblical, in fact, it's not an apocryphal book, it's, it's uh, not the Talmud, it's another book that I can't remember the name of it, in which God, their God, this uh, the monotheistic uh, 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 Unitarian God that the Jews worship, <coughs> is called firstborn of creation. The very same term is applied to him. Now, the Jews certainly do not believe that God was a created being. But the term is applied, again, to point, because it's being used in the sense of the preeminent Lord over creation. And so Paul is taking it and applying it to the Lord Jesus. And it's probable that this word, prototakos, firstborn, was a word that was used by the heretics, which he's opposing, perhaps, something they were bringing up. And so he, in, in essence, uh, doesn't exactly steal it from them, but he gives it its true application in fulfillment of that image in the Old Testament of the firstborn. The third point to notice re relates to the union of this phrase and the previous phrase. They're joined together. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn with reference to all creation. Now the first clause emphasized the fact that if we would see or know the invisible God, we have to look at the invisible Christ, uh, excuse me, the visible Christ. So the second phrase stresses that if we who are created beings would transact with the invisible God, we must transact with the Father's representative to creation, His firstborn, Jesus Christ. As the firstborn represents His Father acting in His name, so Christ is the ultimate firstborn. All transactions are with Him, and they are the very same as a transaction with the Father. As the firstborn is the manager of the house who carries on its affairs, so Christ is the manager of creation, the governor and the Lord, the one who has to do with its daily operations. In fact, I don't think I can say it any better than this uh, commentator Edie puts it, so I'm going to read it to you. Christ, quote, Christ is manifested deity, appearing, speaking, working, ruling, as in patriarchal times, when he descended in a temporary humanity and held familiar discourse with the world's fathers, and as under the mosaic economy of whose, <coughs> of, of whose theocracy he was the head, of whose temple he was the God, of whose oracles he was the inspirer. Now he is exalted to unbounded sovereignty as Lord of all, rolling onwards the mighty and mysterious wheels of human providence without halting or confusion, seated as his father's deputy on a throne of unbounded dominion, which to this world is its tribunal of judgment, 
wearing the name at which every knee bows, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. The acting president of the universe and therefore the firstborn of every creature. It's important you remember that verse from Philippians. The name at which every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. Remember that verse was with regard to establishing the preeminence of Christ as the exalted uh, redeemed uh, redeem, redeemer and Lord of all. He's over all. So he's the firstborn of all creation. Now there are two applications that I would like to bring forth from this. Very brief, simple applications. First of all, and I think this is important, we must guard against a sort of practical deism or Unitarianism. As you know, Unitarianism or deism is when people discount the Son and, uh, as either being not God at all or not an intermediary and would have to do with the, this God. This, 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 this God who's out there somewhere that they must have to do with, and they have many different conceptions of him, whether it's the Jews' idea of the, of the monotheistic, which is correct, but Unitarian as opposed to Trinitarian God, or that of the Unitarian same view. But there is a way in which people fall into very easily, I think, a sort of practical deism. Oh, certainly they... Christ is in their Bibles, they think of Christ, they know of Christ, but somehow when they transact with God, they have this image that they're praying to the invisible God, they're worshipping the invisible God, they're trusting in the invisible God, and Christ's place is gradually diminished, because they're not having directly to do with Christ. Christ is in their religion as a doctrine, but he's not there as the one to whom they have to do, as the central thing. Christ is the creator. Christ is the constant provider. It is he who controls providence. Christ is the redeemer. Christ will be the judge. It is Christ with whom men have to do. He is the firstborn of the Father, the representative to the world. It is in his name that we pray. We need to worship the Lord Jesus. We don't merely trust in God. That's a false religion. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as God, as the true and living God. You see, if, if for one moment we develop some sort of religion that goes around Christ to something that we imagine is God, Christ says we can't even find that God. No man has seen him at any time. He's manifested in the Lord Jesus. But people are so prone to this. You hear this all the time. They talk about God. God this, God that, God the other. And, uh, how, and, and particularly uh, as, as people move generally, I hate to say this, towards liberalism, but, but, but others even as well, Christ, the centrality of Christ drops out. And, and, and people think that because they, ha because they believe in some sort of invisible God, that there's only one God and that He controls the world. And because they pray to Him, and because they try to do right by Him, that therefore they're okay with Him. And that they're worshiping the true God. And the Bible declares all throughout it that that's false. God is to be worshipped through Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think to have to do with God and you have little thought of Christ in your heart or mind... You have nothing to do with God. You are a stench in God's nostrils and an offense to God because God will not be approached directly that way. 
God will consume you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ as the visible God as the firstborn of creation with whom we have to do. And the second application is built upon this and that is that we cannot escape Him. All men must have to do with Him eventually. All men are created by Him. All men are upheld in their very existence by the Son of God. He is the only Redeemer. And for those who reject Him and the tender mercy of the Gospel and the grace and love of God revealed in the Gospel, for those who reject Him, He will be a severe judge. All men will stand before Him. No man can escape Him. And what a terrible thing it will be to imagine to have served God all one's whole life, only to find out that the God that one served is not the Lord Jesus Christ, but another God, and the God to whom one must answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not worshiping Christ, praying in Christ's name, trusting in Christ, with the cross of Christ is central to us, with His Spirit conforming us to His image so that He is all and in all and central to us, then why do we call ourselves Christians? A meaningless, empty, vain term if Christ is not at the heart of it. Next week then we will consider how it is especially that Christ may be called the firstborn with reference to all creation, as He is the Creator of all things in heaven and in earth. Amen. Amen.